just because the youth are going to Sentosa after this. So I think uh, they decide to come to the early service so they can make it to Sentosa faster. Okay, let's uh, go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, truly we pray that we will be able to to be really instructed by your word today, uh, to take the warnings, to heed the warnings, and to know your true character as we look at your word in the book of Judges chapter 2. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now many years ago, uh, about 20 years ago, this will be the 1990s now, seems like a long time to me, uh, I remember getting a lift home from a friend of my sister and I was trying to evangelize uh, this friend of mine as he was driving home. And I still remember, even 20 years later, the reply of this uh, man, who was, or this uh, person that was sitting with me, uh, who was driving back. And I remember he said, I don't need Jesus. He said, I don't need Jesus because I don't need a crutch in my life. Now, you know what a crutch is, right? You know when you break your leg and you walk with these crutches? And what he was actually saying is, I don't need Jesus because I don't need a psychological crutch in my life. You know, some sort of emotional crutch. And he basically said that, uh, you know, he only sees Jesus, people who need Jesus, as people who need crutches. And uh, getting out of his car, I could understand why he could see he doesn't need crutches. Because as I got out of his gleaming BMW, right, and uh, he went off to uh, become a doctor. And I think at that time, he just won the, the club golf championship. I could see that he really didn't need any crutches in his life. But I think that the problem was that uh, he really misunderstood Jesus and God. Because Jesus and God are not psychological or emotional crutches. Uh, it's not something where we need to, uh, some philosophy we need to understand to get through life difficult times. Because as we've been looking in the Bible, God is a real God and He displays Himself in history. And that's why the Bible is actually made up of the Old and New Testament. The word testament is literally a word to say testifying to something. So we've been, uh, actually, if you don't realize what we've been doing at BTPC, we've been trying to go through the Old Testament uh, over the last few years. And here, if you look up here on the slide, uh, the reason I'm here is because I can use my power pen, uh, the light pen or whatever, right? Is that you, we've actually gone through uh, Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy over the last few years at uh, BTPC. And all of them, if you remember, actually testify to God, right? In different ways, uh, it shows God revealing himself to his people. So God promises things to his people, God protects his people, and God provides for his people. It's all history, not philosophy. It is not some sort of psychological crutch. Now, as we come into the book of Judges, it's very important to see how it all fits in the history of what God has been doing. So if you look at the beginning, right, you'll see that uh, we studied... Oh, the pen doesn't work. Oh, the other side, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I'm not very experienced with this. Okay, so you remember in the book of Genesis, right? God had made some promises to Abraham, right? That was the beginning of God's people, Abraham. So God had said in the next slide, God had promised Abraham, right? He said, the Lord had said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, leave your country, your people, your father's household and go to the land I will show you. See, the land is very important. Keep that in mind, the land, okay? I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. 
He took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan. Okay, very important, Canaan, okay? And they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord said to Abram and said, appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. Now what is this land that God had in mind? Okay, the next slide. Okay, now God, he had left Haran, remember, if you remember the passage, Genesis 12, he had lost Haran and he had travelled all the way to this place called Shechem and the Canaanites were in the land. So God had promised Abraham, the first of his people, that he would give this land, Canaan, right, to his offspring, to the offspring of Abraham. And as we saw in the book of Genesis, the next slide, okay, that God had provided children for Abram. Okay, God had provided uh, Isaac to Abram, and then to Isaac he provided Jacob, and he protected them and provided for them all this time. And again in Genesis chapter 28, God had said to Jacob, which was the grandchild of Abraham, another promise that he would have this land. Okay, the land, I'm just trying to get you oriented to the land, okay? Jacob left Bathsheba and set out for Haran. Remember, Haran was up north. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Okay? Very uh, hard pillow. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth and its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, I will give you and your descendants the land in which you are lying. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Okay, again, let's look at the map. Okay, so he had been making his way in Haran. He fell asleep here in Bethel, again in the land of Canaan. And again, God had reaffirmed the promise He had given to His forefather Abraham. And He said, I will give you this land. And as we finish the book of of Genesis, the next slide, again, we see God protecting and providing for His people. He took uh, the family of of, uh, Jacob. He had 12 children by then, right? Okay, I won't go through all the names. And He brought them to Egypt because there's a great famine in the land. Okay, So that's what Genesis was about. Okay, then the next slide. So we finished Genesis, then we looked at Exodus. We, we skipped these other two books because uh, quite boring, but you get the general picture. Right, okay. Then there's Deuteronomy, and then there's Joshua, but we also didn't look at Joshua. But if you look at the next map, it's quite, actually quite straightforward to see how God is working in history. So you look at the next map. Next map. Yep. So in Exodus, it's all about God through a series of miraculous plagues, taking his his people by now a great nation, out of the nation of Egypt uh, against Pharaoh, bring them into the, the land, they wander here for 40 years, that's what Exodus is about. Okay? And then, Deuteronomy is about how Moses brings the people here and through a series of three sermons, uh, if you remember, I hope you remember all these things, right? because we did study it, uh, Moses had prepared the people for what they must do as they enter into the promised land. Okay, so Deuteronomy was all about Moses saying, these are the things that God wants you to do as you enter this land that God has promised you. And Joshua 
It's all about the initial conquest of coming into the promised land. Okay, so the next slide. So, as Joshua comes into this land, uh, it's a very, very quick battle. It's a bit like a, you think of America and Iraq. Okay, remember when America attacked Iraq? Uh, everybody thought it might be a very long battle, but it only lasted a few weeks. Remember, America, through his shock, shock and awe, right, just sort of wiped out the Iraqi army. And that's where we're at today when we look at the book of Judges. Because in the book of Judges, the next slide, okay, um, the battle has been won, but now all the tribes, uh, Simeon, Judah, Dan, Ephraim, Manasseh, Asher, uh, you know, Zebulun, they all have to go in and occupy the land. And that's where last week we saw that the problems started happening, isn't it? Because just like Iraq, winning the war is easy, but occupation is difficult. And last week we saw that they had many, many problems trying to occupy the land. And today in chapter 2, we begin to understand why it is it's so hard to occupy the land. Because up until now, it should have been a very easy thing, isn't it? God promised the land a few times and God should have just let them in and then story over, right? But why was it so hard for the Israelites to occupy this land that they already won in battle? So turn to me to verse 6 to 13, right, which was read to us. Hey, you need a Bible? I won't be flashing all the passages up. If you need a Bible, it's not too late to put up your hands. Anybody need a Bible? Okay. Verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to its own inheritance. We saw that on the map, right? Everybody went off to their own part of the world, of Canaan, to take over their own, occupy the land. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen the, all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the, in the land of his inheritance, at timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up, who knew neither the Lord or what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the balls. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Osiris. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. Now, the first thing we notice here is last week, in chapter 1, it was all about Israel failing to occupy the land. And it was given a lot of reasons, right? You know, the people had chariots. Uh, the Israelites were strong in the hill country, but not strong in the plains. But here we see the real reason why the Israelites couldn't take the land was because of failure. Religious failure. A relationship failure. Spiritual failure. Because the next generation failed to know God to have knowledge of God, to serve God, God blocked their entry into a full occupation of the land. Now here we see three generations, right? You look at the passage, there are three generations. There's Joshua, the first generation, then the next generation of the elders who served with Joshua, and then the last generation, another generation, a third generation. And we see that actually the first two generations were very similar. They served God, they know God, and they had knowledge of God. But the third generation, it says... In verse 10, right? Very clearly. As you can see up here on the slide. Next slide. Yeah, Alan. It says there very clearly, 
they did not know, or they knew neither the Lord, nor what he had done for Israel. Now, here it shows a complete breakdown of the relationship with God, isn't it? Now, the word know here is used in various ways. Okay, so know... It's like knowing God, right? So I've got this book here, a very famous book. If you ever get a chance to read it, I highly recommend it. Knowing God by J.R. Packer. Right? And, and the word here, knowing, is the idea where you know someone, you care for someone. It's like, I know you, you know me, right? It's not about passing an exam. It's about relationship. And I love what J.R. Packer says, right? He said um, in this quote, What are we made for to know God? What aim should we set for ourselves in life to know God? Says, and then he says here, in this next passage, For knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a man's heart. And I think what was happening here was the next generation, this third generation, uh, they may have been going through the rituals like their fathers, maybe they worship, they give sacrifices. But there was no thrill in their heart in the relating to God. They, they didn't, there was no warmth in their heart towards God. They didn't know God in that way. But in this passage as well, the word know here is also used in a different way. They, they didn't have a relationship with God, but also they did not know what he had done for Israel. Right? So the word know here can be used in two different ways. Right? So knowing God is a relationship one. Another book, know the truth. Right? They had no knowledge. They had no knowledge of God. They forgot what God had done. Now some people say, well, you know, Joshua and all that, they, they, it was different. Because they could see what God had done, you know, when they were in the desert, in those 40 years walking around. But, if you look at verse 12, it says there that they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. See, generation after generation, uh, the Israelites were meant to teach their children what God had done. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, the next slide, the next slide, okay, when, when they were in the promised land, just before they went in, right, this is here. Moses had reminded the people, this is what you must keep doing when you enter the promised land. And what were they to do? Next slide. Okay, this is what he said, right? Be careful. Watch yourself closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, and when you said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words, so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land, and may teach them to their children. So this third generation, we don't know whether it's the parents' fault, or whether it's the children's fault, but they forgot. They had spiritual amnesia. They couldn't remember what God had done for them. And because of that, they lost their theological anchor. See, that's what happens, right? If you're married, imagine if you're married, if you, if you don't have a relationship with your husband or wife, you don't know your husband or wife, if you don't know about what's happening in their life, then what happens next? You become unfaithful, isn't it? You become unfaithful. And as you look at this passage, that's exactly what happens in verse 11 to 13. They did evil in the lives of, the God, of God, it says there, and they served Baal. It says there in verse uh, 13, they forsook him and served the Baal and the asterisk. Now, who is this Baal fella? 
and the Asterus. Now, Baal in the ancient world was the god of fertility. You know what fertility is? It's where you have lots and lots and lots of children. Or lots and lots of what? Offspring. Okay? That's, uh, that's what? It was very important. Like, it's important in Singapore today, right? More than two children, right? Okay? Same thing. The god of fertility, they wanted more flocks, more fields, more children. And Asterus were supposed to be like his mistresses or lovers or consorts. And uh, Baal was really responsible for, for the fertility in three areas, in the fields, in the crops, for the flocks, for the lambs and goats and everything else, and also in the family, right? the three Fs, flocks, fields and family. But the way that uh, you worship Baal is not like, you know, say, dear Baal, can you please give me more children? Right? Can you please help the crops grow more? No, it doesn't work that way, right? See, the way that you worship Baal and Asterisk in those days was what you call sympathetic worship. It was a sympathetic religion. So what you do is, uh, you, you, you do something in your worship to, to, to help uh, Baal and the Asterisk, help you be more fertile. So the religious practices of the Baal and the Asterisk was to participate in sex orgies. There were temple prostitutes, sacred prostitution. It's like having gay lung at church. Okay? That's the idea. So then when Baal looks down at these people, his worshippers having sex and everything else, he will start feeling a bit uh, worked up, right? hot under the collar, and then he will start having sex with the asterisk, and everybody's happy because the whole, everybody's very fertile. See? So you can sort of imagine uh, a conversation with uh, uh, the typical Israelite and the neighbouring uh, Canaanite. He says, uh, yeah, you know, this Yahweh, uh, yeah, your God is not bad, lah. Uh. Brought you all out of Egypt, brought you to this land. But what has he done for you in the fields? What has he done for you for your family, right? You know, it's like Yahweh is very good when you go to war, but you know, you need another God, another God, you know, to help you have more children. Why don't you come and join me for our midweek Canaanite service, right? Just come and see what's missing in your life. And then, you know, the Israelites say, Yeah, no, that makes sense, right? I have Yahweh, but I also have Baal. I can hedge my bets, right? If God doesn't help me, I can have Baal help me. But again, you see, they forgot, you see, the spiritual amnesia, that before they went into the promised land, God had said, what? First commandment of the Ten Commandments, which was, okay, chapter 5, verse 1. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery you shall have no other gods before me. Okay? Like uh, my lecturer Barry Webb once said, commandment number one is, thou shalt not hedge your bets. Okay? You must only worship God and God alone. And I think that that's a very important lesson for us, right? As we look at this passage. It is that God does not stand us having rivals. He... he he cannot stand it when we combine other things with our worship of Him. He cannot stand it when we hedge our bets. Uh, the technical word is syncretism, right? We, we, we add other things to our worship of God. But instead, we must guard our knowledge of God and we must guard our relationship with God. Do you guard your relationship with God? I remember when I was working in the corporate world, I used to have, uh, I printed out Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 on my desk, right? Uh, which says, okay, next slide. Above all else, 
Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And the reason I did that was because I remember when I was working in the, in the working world, I was very tempted. I was tempted by you know, the career, I was tempted by money, I was, I was tempted by the lifestyle of other people. Uh, there were ladies at work who maybe were, wanted to have a fling or whatever, right? There's lots of things at work that tempt you. And I always kept telling myself, remember to guard your relationship with God. Guard your knowledge of God. Because Israel felt that, okay, I can have a little bit of ball, and that's alright. A little bit of the asterisk, but a little compromise here, a little accommodation there. And what happens? You prostituted yourself to the world. See, it's interesting, isn't it? If you look at verse 16 and 17, it says that Israel prostituted themselves to other God and worshipped them. Now, why does God use the word prostitute? See, prostitute could be because part of the worship of Baal was sexual. But I think prostitute also is used in a different way, isn't it? Because when you prostitute yourself, what do you do? You sell yourself, you sell your body in return for money or something else, isn't it? So Israel was selling herself in exchange for maybe fertility, more children, whatever. They were selling themselves for something else. But we cannot sell ourselves, see? We cannot sell ourselves to the world. We must guard our relationship with God. Now, I want to remember someone once said, God has no grandchildren. Right? God has no grandchildren. For the young people here, just because you grow up in a Christian family, just because you come to church, you go to Sunday school, there's no guarantee of salvation. right? Because in each generation, they must guard their own relationship with God. Each generation must protect itself and know what it means to follow God. Now, what happens after that? Turn with me to verse 14 to 15. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to the enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. Now, just as Israel rebelled, God couldn't take it after a while. Isn't it? God got angry, and God sold them to the enemies. See, remember, the Old Testament testifies to God's power. God himself gives his people over to the people in the land. Not, not because they didn't have enough power or their, you know, their, their weapons weren't good enough. God gave them over. See, the picture of God here is a very powerful God who cannot take it past a certain point when his people rebel against him. He's not a God who wrings his hands and says, oh, what am I going to do? Oh, my children don't listen to me. Or, you know, he's not a God who says, okay, as long as people are happy, that's fine, right? But God is a God who cares about his people's holiness and faithfulness. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Because as we've been going through Genesis all the way here, remember God and his people have an exclusive relationship. They must only, the people must exclusively worship God. They must love God alone. Now, if God loves his people, then God must also be angry when His people are not faithful to Him, isn't it? So I remember uh, when you marry people, 
the vow, one of the vows, in case you're thinking of getting married, one of the vows is, you will keep only unto her so long as you both shall live and the bridegroom shall answer, I will. And to the bride, you shall keep only unto him so long as you both shall live and the bride shall answer, I will. Now what happens is, uh, if, if you marry someone and uh, you suspect that your spouse, husband or wife, is sleeping with someone. And not only do you find that your suspicion is real, but not only is that person sleeping, one person sleeping, many people. Now, is it appropriate then for the husband or wife to say, oh well, as long as they're happy. Right? Win some, you lose some. You know, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Right? No, right? You expect that if the person really loves the wife, they'll be furious, they'll be angry. But that's exactly what's happening. Is that God and His people have an exclusive relationship. But His people are sleeping around, they're prostituting themselves with all the other gods. And of course, God is angry. See, the picture of God here is that God cannot tolerate sin forever, isn't it? There comes a point in time where God acts in anger against sin and rebellion in His people. So I remember, there used to be this cartoon right up here. Right? Pearly gates or something. It used to be in the Straits Times. But you know, that's the picture of God in the world, right? You know, he's this old man, very kindly and gentle, but he's kind of like a bit ineffectual, right? Not really much power, doesn't get very angry. But the thing is, some people actually believe it. Some people say, oh, you know, the God of the Old Testament, yeah, he's an angry God, but the God of the New Testament, he's the God of love. You know, God is just love. And I remember hearing a pastor say, you know, he only preaches about God's love. He doesn't want to preach about God's anger. But there's only half of God's character, right? Because if God loves, he gets angry when his people rebel. In the New Testament, this is what it says in uh, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Verse 8 of Peter. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, the, the day of judgment does come. God's character demands that the day of judgment comes. But, as you can see, it says here that God is patient. But His patience runs out one day, isn't it? But the surprising thing, from verse 16 to verse 19, is that God doesn't give them over to destruction once and for all. And He keeps loving them. So in verse 16, the God raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord had raised up a judge for them, He was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt and those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Now, 
A few things surprising here is that God's compassion, God's love is even greater than His anger. The people keep doing worse and worse things, but He keeps sending judges to save them. And He does it out of compassion, out of love to them. But the second surprise is, even though God, God is so loving, the people go, get worse and worse, isn't it? One judge dies, then they get worse. Another judge dies, they get worse. Even though the judge is wrong, they don't listen. Someone once said that the book of Judges is a cycle, right? God loves the people sin. God loves the people sin. But actually, it's not a cycle. Okay? A cycle is people going nowhere. Okay? It's not going round and round, like uh, one of my lecturers, Barry, was saying again. It's not going round and round. It is going round and down. Right? He says it's like a drain, right? You know, when you have a bath and you open the drain, all the water starts sucking into the drain. Or like a plane, no, which is going down like this. That is what Israel is doing. It's going round and down. They're going somewhere. They're going down to destruction, right? Because they're getting worse and worse and worse. But, the third surprise is God continues to want to rescue these people. As we come to chapter 3, even though the Israelites are so evil, God does not destroy them. But God still continues to try to love them. As the writer Eugene Peterson once said, the single most astonishing people of, about, the, about the people of God is that they exist. Right? The very fact that the people still exist, even though they get worse and worse and worse, actually shows the love of God, the grace of God, the compassion of God. So when you really boil down the story of Judges chapter 2 together, it's about two things. It's all about love. The lack of love of God's people and the infinite love of God for His people. Can you see those two things happening? But I think that as we see this, it's actually a picture of the future, isn't it? Because that infinite love of God is actually shown at the cross, isn't it? Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, that is where God shows His infinite love for His people. Because even thousands of years later, in Jesus' time, people are still rebelling against, God's people are still rebelling against Him. But He sends not a judge, but His own Son to die and to save His people. So, I mean, recently, you know, uh, some bad things have happened to you know, like, uh, people at our church. So like for Sweet Ting and Cynthia, they lost the baby. And then the, the, the question that we can ask is, where is God? Isn't it? Does God care? Does God love us? But then, when you look from Genesis to Judges 2, you see God keeps loving His people. But even more at the cross, when you see the scars of Jesus on His hands, when you hear Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For our sake. We know that God loves us. But I think the lesson for us is, just as God has love for us, we can only benefit from that love if we turn back to Him. So the question I have for you is, how is your relationship with God? Are you guarding your relationship with God? Do you, are you guarding your knowledge of God? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, it says this. Hey? It says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I, may pres I might present you as a pure virgin to Him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was dece deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may have somehow been led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Same idea, isn't it? Do you have a sincere 
pure devotion to Christ. Do you know God? Do you serve God? Do you guard that knowledge of God in your life? Or has Satan deceived you and you've given your life and prostituted yourself to other things? Because ultimately, as we look at this passage, yes, God loves and He loves infinitely and He sends His judges, right? He sends Jesus. But unless we turn back to Him in love, then we too one day will get judged. And we will not get the benefit of His love. So God loves infinitely. But have you loved Him back? Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, truly as we have seen in your word, let us take heed that we do not follow the example of your people in those days as they entered into the promised land, that third generation, and the, that they kept going from bad to worse and spiraling down and down and down and that they kept turning away from you over and over again, prostituting themselves to various gods and different idols. We pray for ourselves that as we know you, we know of your love for us, we know of your character, that we are reminded time and again of who you are, that we will not be like them, that we will know you, we will thrill at the relationship with you, that we will have a great knowledge of you, that we will have a sincere and pure devotion to you. Help us to remember that God has no grandchildren, that each and every one of us, each generation, must make its own decision to love you. That when we are asked, will we hold only onto you, we will say we will. And in this way, we will be confident that when Jesus comes again, we will rise with him to eternal life. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.